go. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have an amazing guest today. Um, I know every guest I say I have an amazing guest, but this is truly an amazing guest. I have a, someone who's mastered spirituality. He's written over 18 books on spirituality from the Christ Sutras to the Bhagavad Gita. Um, I don't know if I pronounce it. I don't know why. The Mahabharata, you know. Um, he's also, what he's tackled recently, and what I, there was a couple things that drew me into him. If you guys remember, I had Howdy McCoskey on the show. Um, Howdy had him on his show, but then I looked into this author, and it, I saw that he wrote a book on the Emerald Tablets of Thought, which you guys know I'm really, I'm really keen to. I see a lot of, you know, good things in the Emerald Tablets of Thought. Like, it's... Um, I think it's a, a must read for anybody, but it's more than that. This, let me just read you about this, this man, because like I said, he wrote 18 books on spirituality. I have with me Bart Marshall. He had a near-death experience during the Vietnam War that propelled him on a 37-year stretch for truth, which culminated in 2004, what he calls a conclusive spiritual occurrence. For the next 10 months, he made himself available as a non-dual spiritual teacher, holding weekly meetings in Raleigh, North Carolina, and giving talks and retreats around the country. In 2015, he contracted a tick-borne illness that attacked his brain, went undiagnosed, and literally drove him insane to the point of being committed to a state of mental institution. When fully diagnosed, he put on heavy antibiotics for a year and fully recovered. Now he counts on that experience of insanity as one of the most important passages of his life. For the last five years, he has been researching the relative truth with the same zeal he applied to discovering spiritual truth, going down every rabbit hole he can find and speaking to whoever will listen about what's really going on in the world and who run, really runs it. And I, I think that's pretty important. He's the author of 18 books, including Becoming Vulnerable to Grace, which is his memoir of Latham Path, and also a comprehensive exposition of his spiritual teachings. Currently, he's completing a new translation of the Bible, the King James Reader's Version, plans to publish this fall and like i said you can look up his books he has many spiritual books his name is bart marshall and his website is selfinquiry.org and realfacepress.com and i want to give him a big warm welcome to the show bart thank you for joining me how are you i'm great thank you so much robert it's really a pleasure being with you yeah, I, I, I really appreciate me, you coming on my show. Thank you. Um, I wanted to go, first start off talking about your near-death experience in Vietnam. That had to be pretty heavy. I mean, um, you know, uh, you're, if you can just explain the situation, if you don't mind telling the audience, you're getting hit with heavy artillery. There's, I mean, there's gunfire and um, you get hit. And what happened, if you don't mind me asking Oh, not at all. No, I tell my story to whoever's willing to listen. Yeah, I generally, um, you know, it's not so much anymore. In the immediate aftermath of the of Vietnam, people would like to uh, ask about it and everything. And I could kind of tell, well, are they just asking to make small talk? Or are they really interested in the details of what went on? And if people were interested, I always thoroughly enjoy talking about it. It's obviously a major part of my life. And I thoroughly enjoy talking about it, so I don't mind talking about it here at all. Um, and yes, I was, uh, you know, before I went to Vietnam, I was just a young, dumb kid that had no questions whatsoever about spirituality, nothing. I just took life as it was taught to me. I had all the normal belief systems of a 19, 20, 21-year-old kid. Um, but I, I went into, I, you know, for reasons that we don't need to talk about, I, you know, just something inside of me made me want to go to war. I wanted to um, 
really get to the belly of the beast of war. And it was just starting when the time I joined the army, um, but I wanted to go. And I wanted to be in the, you know, in the really in the thick of it. So I joined special forces, uh, what's called the Green Berets, and uh, went through all the training and volunteered um, to go. I actually had to drive, I didn't have to, but I drove to the Pentagon um, after my training was finished and found the woman who could sign, that signed all the orders for special forces all over the world. And I found her and asked her to send me on the next manifest to Vietnam, which she did. So I was very committed to going to the war. So, you know, that's an aspect of my character. Um, and uh, when I got there, I continued to volunteer for um, uh, ever more dangerous assignments, you know, whatever reason for that. Anyway, in uh, February of 1968, during the Tet Offensive, um, we were fighting in a, a city called Fantiet. I was with, uh, you know, a, uh, a group of mountain yards. We uh, trained and uh, led mountain yard tri uh, tribesmen as our soldiers. So I was with some mountain yards in uh, Fantiet, and we had had a had a rough day and we were camped in a, um, uh, an old French colonial compound, which had previously been fortified on one wall um, with some uh, sandbags and uh, a superstructure. And that was the wall my uh, troop was, uh, my company was, our platoon was assigned to. So I was just in about three o'clock in the morning, I was sitting uh, just leaning against that wall um, and uh, cleaning my bullets because I had had to uh, wade through a really nasty kind of um, sewage swamp earlier in the day. So I was cleaning my bullets oh, and God. suddenly there's this big, big explosion off to my left. And it could have been, it could have been a hand, hand grenades or it could have been mortars. It was hard to tell because we had lost our um, illumination. It was very dark. And so we could be snuck up on. So they could have, been throwing hand grenades over the wall or it could have been mortars either way it doesn't matter um so anyway a couple went off to my left really quickly and then one just right to my right just almost on top of me to my right um and picked me up blew me into midair and while i was in midair uh time stopped completely stopped like so slow that i could feel the shrapnel going into my body body very slowly just you know, between pieces of shrapnel I had time to have complete thoughts and my thoughts as between the pieces of shrapnel that were hitting me was please not my head please not my head dear god please not my head um, and then everything went black and it was not you know I guess it initially it was you know sort of a normal kind of blackness you could say because it, this was night I can't really talk to the details of that, but very quickly I was in a, a whole different kind of blackness. It was an infinite clear blackness that was full of light, but it was black because there was nothing for the light to reflect off of. Absolutely, absolute emptiness, an infinite emptiness of clear blackness. And I, was, I felt like I was home. This was my home and I wanted to stay. And I would have stayed and gone wherever that wanted to take me. That was home. And then often, the, it's a you know my memory is it was in the upper left hand corner of my vision, so to speak. A small little light started blinking, and I 
my attention went to it. And uh, as it as it was blinking, it got a little bit brighter and then I could hear a sound and the sound got a little more clear and the light got a little more uh, brilliant. And eventually the sound became words and the word was my name. And um, I didn't, you know, recognize it because that was not the name. I knew the name was meant for me, but that was not who I was. I was whatever consciousness was in the blackness. That was who I was. But this name is familiar and I took it on again. And, um, and sometime later came two and, uh, you know, I was evacuated to hospital and all that sort of thing. Um, and in the aftermath, you know, after I got home, even before I got home in the hospitals, but in the aftermath, especially when I got home, um, now I had questions. Before that happened, I did not have any questions about who I was or where I was or what life was or nothing. Now I had a whole shitload of questions. And it propelled me on a spiritual search that took me through Eastern traditions, any kind of religion, any kind of, you know, spirituality that I could find. Um, also into psychedelics, I started doing, you know, someone got me some, it started on LSD, which was a, you know, very informative uh, experience. Um, and something about the near-death experience, the infinite clear blackness and the experiences of LSD and what Eastern religions and Eastern traditions were talking about all seemed to be the same thing. Somehow I couldn't connect it. You know, I, I couldn't connect the dots myself. They seemed to be speaking from the same well, talking about the same thing. And um, for the next 37 years, uh, that was a big part of my life. I had a normal life. You know, I worked for IBM for 30 years, had children, all the normal kinds of things, but the background of everything was uh, this uh, spiritual search that the uh, experience in Vietnam kicked off. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting when you mention this, and, and you worked for IBM, so you might have an idea on what I'm about to ask you about, like, what, from the near-death experience, and, and, um, and when, we, when we think about a simulated reality, like, and, and the LSD experiences, like, and did it all somewhat point to that? I mean, because it seemed like the, the infinite blackness was comfortable to you. I, I mean, like, um, and, and this isn't, and, and also this is different from what most people experience in a near death experience. A lot of people say they see a tunnel with light, but I'm just thinking maybe different people can have different experiences. It, it just depends, but it all, it makes me think that what is our reality? And, 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 it, and it really makes me question like, what, what is this that we're living in? Or, I mean, like, and 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 how, and then how did so? Let me ask you this: What do you think this is that we live in from your experiences in psych, in psychedelics and near death experience and Eastern religions and stuff like that? And then how does that tie in spirituality? Well, um, like I say, it was a thirty seven year journey for me, which culminated in August of two thousand four, and that's where all of my information comes from that experience, which was a, a conclusive experience. He called it enlightenment, self-realization, but uh, everything, you know, my, my driving question for those 37 years is what's really going on here? And my experience in 2004 was actually on an airplane 
30,000 feet above the North Atlantic. Um, and I, I was gifted with a, a clear vision of, you know, capital T truth, which is that I am, everyone is the infinite clear emptiness of God. Um, and it was a, an experience that took me through, you know, deep, deep emotions of, of, of weeping and feeling like I was going through the Trinity of God, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, it was absolutely compelling and definitive that left no doubt about what this was that we were born into. And that is that everything that we know, everything we think we know is woven of emptiness. There is nothing happening. This is just emptiness in which an illusion is appearing. You can call it a dream. You can call it a simulation. You can call it the mind of God. You can call it the imagination of God. But the, it's not real. It's not a real thing. It's, it has, Buddha said, you know, first of all, it's interesting that he said, first of all, he's talking to spiritual seekers. He says, first of all, understand that the universe, you and everything in it, and you yourself, have no substance whatsoever. It does, he's just said no substance. And that's exactly a, a perfect way to describe it. Because when we say illusion or dream or something, we start conjuring up other things. But to say no substance, it means there is no, it's not that nothing is happening. It's just that it has no reality. It has no material substance whatsoever. So we can talk about it as a simulation, as a video game, as a holographic, virtual reality extravaganza, whatever kind of metaphor we want to come up with for it. But the essential truth is nothing is actually happening. This is just, this so-called reality is woven of emptiness. It is, emptiness is the, the medium in which this illusion appears. Um, and so that, it doesn't really matter what we call it, but the, the big belief that is absolutely destroyed when you have a, um, a conclusive experience is that we are not living in an infinitely old, infinitely vast universe of solid separate objects. That is not what's going on. It is not what we've been taught. It is not what science tells us. It's not what, even not what religion tells us, except the very deepest esoteric parts of religion. Um, we are living, you know, we are experiencing, um, our, our metaphors get ever better as technology advances. Um, Plato talked about shadows on the wall of a cave. It was the best he could do is say, it's not real. We're shadows on the wall of a cave. And then as technology gets on, we can talk about it as a movie. We can talk about it as a dream, as a movie. Now we can talk about it in terms of virtual reality, in terms of uh, a simulation, because our technology and metaphors have gotten better. But it all is just pointing towards the fact that it is not real. It does not have any substance. You know, I think of it more as um, the imagination of God. This is occurring in the imagination of God. You know, if, uh, you know, if he wants it, it happens. Um, and it, the implications of that are, are vast, obviously, about all the kinds of things that we believe about our reality. But that's the that's the basis for everything. If you're not if you're not grounded in that truth, then you're going off in all sorts of different you know 
red herring kind of directions trying to prove with physics this or that or whatever it's all if you're basing all of your research on the belief that we're living in a real manifested material world you're off base from the very beginning because we're not that's that's really interesting like it, it makes me think like you know like because what, what what freaks me out about it is the fact that we're biological that we can touch things but you know michael talbot called it the holographic universe he said there's sensors in our brain that go to our eyes the cones in our eyes that make that tells us that something's real but it might not be real like my computer that i'm talking to you right in right now might be a hologram like it's or a, a form of a hologram from what my from what michael talbot said our brain tells our eyes are you familiar with this? Yeah, and, and I would just back you up a little bit in that um, you're a hologram. It's not just the things in that um, you're real and everything else isn't. You're not real either. You, you have no substance. The whole thing has no substance, everything. It's not like individual objects might be a hologram. That presumes that there is a physical universe in which holograms appear. The phys what we consider the physical universe is itself a hologram if you want to use that metaphor. Um, it, everything is just transpiring in, it's literally, you know, a, a, probably the best or most accurate way we can talk about it is a dream. You know, a very lucid, complex, multi-sensory dream. Our senses are part of the hologram. You know, to say that we can touch it, it's a hologram, but we can touch it, that doesn't quite get at it because you know, our senses are also part of the hologram. So in other words, I mean, even now with our little pea brains, we have successfully invented virtual reality in which you can touch things that aren't there. You know, the, the metaverse and the virtual reality kinds of experiences, you can, hold, you can be wearing gloves and you can touch things and you think your mind is telling you you're touching a real thing. You're not. So that's a good metaphor for what we are actually living. We think we're touching things. We think we are seeing things. We think our senses are reporting back to us a physical universe. That's not what's going on. Our senses, our body, everything that we think we are and everything that we think we are experiencing is just a dream, like a dream that you would have at night. And when you wake up in the morning, where does that dream go? It does not waiting for you to come back. It just it's disappears. It, 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 it like and and I and some people have told me that our dream world is more real than this world. I've been told that in other podcasts, and I I quite don't understand that because I mean, but it, the dream world does seem very real. It's it's weird, you know. It seems like our mind makes. I mean, like I could have. I've said this before in other podcasts. Like I could live like seven weeks in a dream. And it seems like I've, I and I've I've slept seven hours, but I've I've just lived a entire life where I could have had a farm and grew crops and had kids and watched them grow, and then all of a sudden, boom! I wake up and that just goes away and disappears. But it, it seems like that could yeah. have been a parallel reality. Well, yeah, I mean, we could talk about it in those terms, but you know, I would disagree with someone that said you're. Um, night dreams are more real than than this it's the same thing it's just it, it's not different it's not more real neither is real uh, i prefer to just say that you know we sort of agree that our dream life is not real so let's agree also that this is not real either because they are the same thing and you make me think of um 
there's a short story by Ambrose Bierce that's relatively uh, famous, um, you know, occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, in which a um, uh, a civilian it's during the Civil War and a civilian uh, is being about to be hanged by the Union Army from a bridge. He's got a noose around his neck, and they're about to you know push him off the bridge to be hung, and they do. They tip the plank he's on, he, he drops off the bridge, and as he drops down towards the river, the rope breaks, and he splashes into the river, and he escapes, and the rest of the story is about the life that he lives. He, he escapes, he, he gets married, he has children, he has a farm, he has this whole big life that he has, and then, um, but then it switches back to the bridge, and as he drops what, what happens is not that the rope breaks, his neck breaks. That whole story about his life after the rope broke was just in the fraction of a second before his neck broke and he died. That's how, what you were just talking about, the time difference, uh, you know, it, it doesn't make any difference. You know, it's, it's imaginary. It's, it's, a, it's all occurring in our head. It's occurring in the mind of God. The essential point I think I would make is just don't believe that this is real. Doesn't matter about coming up with alternate. I mean, we can come up with lots of alternate explanations, and all of that is fine, and it's it's good, and it's it's good to stretch our minds in those directions. But the bottom line is, it is all just only a dream transpiring in an instant, transpiring in an instant. Wow. Time is part of the illusion. Time is part of the illusion. Time is in the illusion. We are not living in time. Time lives within the dream. So what, is, what do you think that tells us about our souls in the afterlife? What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's an interesting segue. Um, I got no information in my experience on the plane. Um, I got no information about the afterlife other than it's absolutely safe. It's just the continued consciousness. Nothing happens to consciousness. Consciousness is eternal. Um, so it's only the, uh, the specifics of a character, the specifics of the Robert character, the specifics of the Bart character that dies when the body dies. And it does die. You know, the, you know, yeah, um, the, the character does die. But that which it truly is, true nature, which is not specific to the character. This is an important point, you know, um, let's just say, we'll call it life. Life goes on, but you don't. But your experience is continuous, but it's just the experience of consciousness. It's not the experience of a specific character with a name and that had a story attached to it. That, that's gone, that goes. But there is, you know, I, I think soul is a, a, a perfect way to talk about it. It's fine. I'm, I'm fine with that word. But there is an, multiple individual, let's just call them entities or life forms or whatever called a soul that does take on different character lives sequentially or continue or, uh, you know, even in parallel lives. And it's for its own education. There is a, an evolution of the soul, and the soul evolves and learns through individual lives, which come and go. That's pretty interesting. Um, now, I, I wanted to flip the subject a little bit, because you we said in the bio that you've been going down every rabbit hole to find the truth about what it is that runs the world and like 
who runs us and everything. And I wanted to get into a situation that was going on during the Vietnam War, but um, he tried pulling us out, and that's JFK. Um, and you're, you, you went down conspiracy theories. So this is a little bit of switch to the topic, but I wanted to, I wanted to get your opinion on it because yeah, I'm sure you have a good opinion on it. Like, what do you think happened, the, the real truth, and um, what do you think was going to happen if he would have lived? Well, yeah, he was definitely taken out by what we now call the New World Order. Uh, George Bush Sr. was actually instrumental in that. Lyndon Johnson was in on it, many others. It was, a, it was a, not a conspiracy theory. It was a legitimate, it was a conspiracy to kill Kennedy, and they did. Um, and it wasn't the CIA um, is, was nominally behind it, but you could call it the CIA or whatever you want to call it. it. It's the people who control, truly control the world were behind it. Um, and they had to take him out because he was a threat to, to their uh, plans for world domination. And he was a threat in a couple of different ways, more than one, but he was going to um, go back to the gold standard, which of course the central bankers wanted him taken out. They, they didn't want, you know, he was going to do away with the Federal Reserve, go back to the gold standard. Uh, so they wanted him taken out. Uh, he also, you know, he said in a speech, I'm going to uh, tear the CIA, rip the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. So talk about kicking a hornet's nest. You know, yeah. he didn't know he didn't know the powers that he was dealing with. He didn't know who was against him. He didn't know how big it was. Um, and uh, there was other things that, that they didn't like about him. Um, but he was definitely taken out. It was not a single bullet. The, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was just a scapegoat. He was a mind-controlled, um, you know, puppet um, of the CIA. But he was. There was also other shots fired. You know, and um, the whole thing was the. You know, what we now call the New World Order, a new, a new world order operation. Uh, there's no doubt about that. It's not a conspiracy theory at all. There's, you know, there's just no doubt about it. Well, it's uh, it's what, what's interesting is Oliver Stone was on um, Oliver Stone was on the Joe Rogan podcast. I don't know if you saw that interview, but um, he was talking about it, and he was talking about the whole JFK incident. And Joe Rogan said that they still haven't released files. The CIA they won't declassify the files to this day. They're still covering it up. Where you know a lot of people from that area era have passed away, but they're still clinging on to this secret that they don't want to get out. You know. Well, absolutely. Yeah. That's happening in, in everything in our lives right now. You know, that's, that's kind of when the new world order came out of the closet, so to speak, they were working behind the scenes for decades and, you know, really millennia. It's a whole different topic about how deep the rabbit hole is there. Um, but uh, when, with the open assassination of a, a president, um, they were uh, essentially um coming into their own say, okay, we're, we're taking over. Um, yeah, and we're taking over visibly and you can't stop us. And uh, every president since Reagan has been a part of the club. Um, we are being ruled by ruthless, evil controllers that are um, despicable beyond description. And they are the ones running the world and causing all everything that goes wrong in the world. This is a big statement, you know, and I'm sure there's exceptions, but everything that goes wrong in the world is created intentionally by these controllers, whatever you want to call them. 
And, uh, you know, of course, recently COVID, now they want to start World War III with Ukraine and everything. All of that is part of their plan. They want genocide, depopulation. They want absolutely con absolute control over everyone. They want us to just be transhuman robots serving the elite. Uh, they are, they are, have allegiance to the Georgia Guidestones, which specify the world population should be no more than 500 million. And there's close it in on 800 billion of us. So 700 billion of us are expendable, expendable in their, in their eyes. Uh, it's just as, as evil and despicable as it can get. And the JFK assassination was them sort of stepping on stage and say, okay, you know, we're taking over. We've already taken over, but now we're going to let it be more visible and you can't do anything about it. Yeah. And do you think, uh, I wanted to get your, your thoughts on this. Do you think Trump was like a wild card or do you, because like I had a guy come on my show and he was talking about Cambridge Analytica where they use social engineering to, um, to get people into groups to like think they go a certain way. But people told me that Trump was, some people told me that Trump was good and that he was trying to help fight against us. And then other people are telling me, no, he's a part of it. They just want you to think he's good. What do you, I don't know enough about it. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, it's a very interesting question and I claim no, uh, you know, uh, definitive knowledge about that at all. I personally was all for Trump, you know, once I understood him, I didn't initially understand him. Um, but once I understood him and he was in office, I began to understand him with his um, uh, acceptance speech um, on January 20th, you know, whenever he took office. Um, I began to get it. Okay, I get this guy a little bit. And I was all for him the whole time because I thought he did some great things. Um, he moved the country in the right direction and all those sorts of things. And I was very much for his reelection. Uh, I felt like I got kicked in the stomach by a mule when it got stolen from him, all that sort of thing. Uh, my, my big reservation was how he embraced vaccines and how he handled the COVID thing, you know, because I, it's so much of a, a scam. It's so much a part of the New World Order plan um, to, you know, the fuckery of the New World Order. I couldn't understand why he was embracing it. I've later seen um, podcasts and read material that, uh, sought to explain that, why he had to, and that maybe he saved millions of lives by doing it. I don't know. Um, more specifically to your question, it's hard to, uh, it's hard for me to come down on one side or the other. He could be controlled opposition, uh, which is a, a, a very obvious tactic of the New World Order that they allow controlled opposition. Um, to a certain point, so basically they say, okay, you can do these things and you can say these things, but you can't do these things or say those things. Um, and Trump could have been in that category. I tend to think I'm still in favor of him. I don't even know that I would, uh, he would be my uh, candidate of choice uh, next time. I don't know. I have enough doubts that I'm not sure. Um, I think in terms of uh, um where his heart is, uh, Ron DeSantis, I think. I, I, I think he's uh, everything he does and says, I, I resonate with, uh, and mostly Trump as well. But that's not where, you know, the political stuff is not where we need to be focused. 
that's where they would love us to be focused. We're arguing back and forth about Democrats and Republicans and all the ways that they want to divide us. The New World Order wants us divided in every way possible, arguing amongst ourselves, you know, arguing about minutia and trivia and politics and, uh, you know, gay rights and uh, all the things that they try to just used to separate us. That's where they want us. But the solution to the problems of the world are not going to be not going to come through politics. So I don't really focus on that much. It's a much, much bigger problem. It is. And it's it seems like it's something that I don't know how we can overthrow it. I don't know how we can ever come together and and fight against this new world order. I mean, because people talk about it all the time. You hear people say like, you know, we need to unite. And I agree, we do need to unite, you know, but at first off, it's hard to get people to unite, like, when they they can't see eye to eye on stuff. And then, and then secondly, like, some of these people are so out of whack that, like, like, how can we even unite with them? Because their, their, their thoughts and values are so um, against anything. It's like they have a, they want to promote, like, certain agendas, you know what I mean? Like, they, they weaponize diversity, they weaponize sexuality, and they use it against us. Um, and I, you know what I mean. And, uh, and, and this is all part of the New World Order, too. Would, would you agree? Yes, absolutely. And they have all the weapons. They have all the power. Every scrap of media, they control every media except a few, you know, independents like yourself. And there are, there are people out there telling the truth, but they're getting censored from the main platforms and kicked off main platforms. Um, and so it's very hard to find the truth. They've got all the weapons. Um, and, uh, you know, 30 years ago, there was 1500 media companies, uh, cable news, television, radio, newspapers, magazines, and entertainment companies. There was 1500 of them. Now all of them are owned by five mega corporations and they all work for the same, they all work for the New World Order and they do what they're told. It's impossible for most people to get the truth if all they do is turn on their TV or read a newspaper. So that's what we're up against. They've got all the weapons, all the money, they they got infinite supplies of money. They can print as much as they want. All they have to do is get on a computer and put a a couple more zeros on the end of a of a a figure and they get all the money they want. It's almost impossible. We can't defeat them on that level. There's no way that we can get together as good people and defeat that machine. That's just not where it's going to, that's not how we win. Fortunately, what's really going on is a spiritual war. It's a war of consciousness and it's happening at very, very high levels of spirituality. And if you want to get into, you know, multiple species, whatever it's happened, the true war is happening at a much higher level than that. And so on the level of the war of consciousness, the the spiritual war, the war of good and evil, we don't have to out and out defeat them numbers against numbers. There's if a critical mass of people wake up to the truth, and start talking the truth and speaking the truth and living the truth, the whole th- the whole paradigm will collapse. And fortunately, that doesn't have to be 51%. It can be a very much smaller percentage. The critical mass of people who truly can see the truth can maybe be 10, 15% of the world. And, uh, and the whole thing will collapse. 
yeah. that's happening. Right now, you know, you look at the news, it seems like that everything's going their way. But if you look past it, you also see that it's collapsing. They know it's collapsing. That's why they're ratcheting it up so quickly, so fast, and pounding so hard on their agenda, because they know their time is limited. They're, it's, it's starting to collapse around them. And uh, it's an incredible time to be alive for this. Um, on a soul level, we talked about that a little earlier. There's a, there's a narrative that says on a soul level, we all volunteered to be here in this time because it's such a fascinating, fertile time for spiritual development of the soul and just a fucking fascinating movie to watch. Yeah. yeah. Jesus, you know, what more could you ask in a, in a movie? It's a thrill a minute. Every day you get up and it's something else. It's and, a drama, right? Every day it's like a drama. Like It's like we're faced with the biggest problems every day and we have to figure out like ways to get around them, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And yet, and for those of us who can can accept the challenge, it's it's an incredible time to be alive. Most of the people uh, cannot accept the challenge of that. They they just carry they they live the life of victims, and uh, they buy the they buy the mainstream narrative, and they they uh, cast themselves as the victims in in the narrative, and that's where they live and die. So, but there's a small percentage of us that um, on the level of consciousness and spiritual work and, and other things, whatever else we can do, you know, if there's any activism that we can do on the manifest plane, that's wonderful too. But a small percentage, a small but growing percentage of people get it, are getting red-pilled to all of this, are getting, are, are, their consciousness is, is uh, accelerating, their spiritual growth is accelerating. And that's a, a parallel narrative that's happening in the world right now, the Great Awakening. And speaking of the Great Awakening, it makes me think of you, you wrote a book um, on, you wrote a lot of books on spirituality. Like I said, you wrote a book on the Bhagavad Gita, um, but I wanted to talk about the Emerald Tablets of Thought. What, um, what motivated you to write about the Emerald Tablets of Thought? You know, I, I'm not really sure. Um, it, it came to my attention. And um, basically what I do, I don't write books about things. I, I, I translate and create versions of existing uh, spiritual books to try to, um, my, my goal when doing it is to let these ancient texts um, speak for themselves, clearly speak for themselves without inserting myself into it so that the reader can come to them and doesn't need a middleman doesn't need someone to explain it to him, doesn't need any commentary, that the Bhagavad Gita can speak directly to the reader without some guru having to tell you what it's trying to tell you. And the words itself, I'm just, I just make the words itself, the book itself, say what it's intended to say, holding true and faithful to the intention of the speaker or the original author, um, and as much as possible to the original language, but doing doing my thing to it so that it becomes more accessible and you can just read through it without stumbling and not have anybody to explain it to you. So that is basically was the same thing with the Emerald Tablets. And, um, but I found it to be, to be a, uh, a fascinating, uh, not alternative narrative, but you know, one that you don't hear, one that you don't see in other spiritual traditions, um, the, the, the underworld, the, the, the kinds of things that Doth talks about, um, uh, you don't see in other 
texts. So I wanted to add that to the conversation, to everyone's conversation. Let's add this to the conversation. And it brings in so many other things, you know, the, that he was an Atlantean, you know, thousands of years old, you know, went to Egypt and there's all sorts of things. Okay, well, you have to maybe accept some things that you previously, you know, might not have accepted even to sort of give any credence to what he had to say. Um, but there are some fascinating teachings in there. And I also, you know, and he's, uh, you know, one of the uh, the three lives of uh, Hermes Trismegistus. Um, however you say that, uh, but the Emerald Tablet, his Emerald Tablet, uh, is very important uh, text, very short, but that has some very concrete esoteric principles in a very very small space. So I included that in the book as well. And of course, the narrative says that Toth and, and Hermes were the same guy, just in different lifetimes. So that makes it more interesting too. Um, but it's it's all just, you know, I don't try to, you know, it, we should believe nothing, for instance. It's not, it's not like pick an alternative belief. So, oh, I, I'm, I'm giving up on Christianity. I'm going to believe in Egyptian religions or whatever. We don't do that. Trading one belief for another, you don't get anywhere. It just, you add it all to the mix, let it all, take it all in, absorb it, whatever sticks, sticks, whatever doesn't stick, let it fall away. Um, the, the, the purpose of all these texts and everything isn't to pick one to believe in or to pick a belief system. The purpose of the spiritual path is to come to a direct, in-your-face, self-evident realization of truth. And it's going to be absolutely unique. It's not going to be anything you ever read. It's not going to be anything you ever heard somebody talk about. It's not going to be anything you could ever imagine in the farthest reaches of your imagination. You cannot conjure up an image or a thought that even comes close to touching true nature. And so it's just not in any of the books anywhere. Yeah, and it's something that we have to find in our own spirituality, right? Through our own quest. Absolutely. And the, on the search, it's, it's important to have questions. And the questions should always be questions that cannot be answered in a book, cannot be an intellectual answer of any kind, can only be, these questions can only be answered by a direct personal experience of truth itself. And if you are holding in your heart and, and repeat as a mantra or as a prayer, a question, a deep question, that can only be answered by a direct experience of the truth, it will happen. It might take a long time, but it will happen. That question will be answered, but it won't be answered in any book, by any teacher, by any experience that you have of a, of a relative nature. Only a direct experience of truth itself will answer the question. And it won't even answer the question. What we'll do will completely obliterate the question as ludicrous because now here is self-evident truth right in your face you have no more questions you don't you're not told a truth because that's not possible you, the, your questions just completely disappear and you live henceforth in mystery that's, that's, that's pretty amazing um, I wanted to ask you about your concept of creation on demand. Okay. <laughs> um, that's, you know, uh, 
we are, as we touched on earlier, we're um, we are experiencing an imaginary universe in the mind of God. Um, so, and you are God. I am God. Everything is God. There's, there's, that's no doubt. That is a self-evident truth. You are the totality of everything. Um, now, within the dream, we believe that we are living in a fixed universe that either you know started with the Big Bang and you know trillions of years later, here we are. You know this this marvel of. Um, you know, intelligence, we evolved from pond scum over trillions of years. So we're kind of taught that, you know, Darwinism, you know, Big Bang, all that kind of shit. Um, and that's what we consider creation. That's not it at all. That is just a story that's science fiction within the dream. What's really happening is, you know, okay, the mind of God. If I'm God, if I'm God and I am, but we'll just put him in a third person, you know, and I'm, I'm an all-powerful creator. I have, I have the choice of, perhaps, just for the purpose of this conversation, the choice of creating this massive, massive universe that goes on for trillions and trillions of light years with tr billions and billions and trillions of stars and planets and everything, all this shit that's going on, whether anybody's looking at it or not. My other choice is, that since I am all powerful, if I want something, all I have to do is think it and it appears. That's what's happening. So the universe uh, bends to our will. When your will is the will of God, yes. That's yeah, another thing that happens on the spiritual path. You converge, your will converges with, the, with thy will. Thy will becomes my will, my will becomes thy will. And when your when your will is the same as the will of God, anything can happen. That's Your crazy. personal will that satisfies Robert's ego, that's tougher. That can that can work too on a small scale. Absolutely. You know, it, it, betweenness. Um, you know, what some people call, you know, the law of attraction, that sort of thing on a very small scale. Yes, thoughts create reality. But on the largest scale, everything the universe and everything in it is just a thought in the mind of God. That's pretty cool. That's a good way to kind of wrap everything up. I just wanted to ask you real quick. Last question is if you could talk about your, your book, becoming vulnerable, your newest book, becoming vulnerable with grace, your memoir of your life path. And then, um, and then I'll let you tell everybody where to find you and everything like that. Okay. Um, yeah. It, I've avoided writing that book ever since I had my experience on the plane because I knew I kind of had one day I was going to have to tell my story and uh, talk about how I might recommend or hints for someone else to have the same experience to discover true nature. And so the, at the first two thirds of the book is, is literally my, my story, um, uh, my seeker story. Um, and it's uh, um you know, it's what I call recapitulation in the Don Juan literature, the Carlos Castaneda books. Um, you know, Don Juan talks about uh, recapitulation. It's, it's a shamanic strategy, which you remember in great and vivid detail your past as a method, as a strategy for self-healing. 
And so the first two thirds of the book is essentially that for me, you know, I hope it's an entertaining read. Um, you know, I've had a relatively dramatic life in a lot of ways, so it's a, a, a good read, but it's also mostly just to um, let the reader decide if I'm someone worth listening to on the subject of enlightenment and self-realization. And in the last third of the book, uh, I, you know, expound on my teachings and what I, you know, recommend, so to speak, or the things that I were have important to me on the path, and I think might be worth consideration for others on a serious spiritual path that truly want to know truth firsthand, um, and not just, you know, be in a spiritual community or feel good or, um, you know, so many people get into spiritual work uh, for kind of extraneous reasons. They just want more comfort in their robotic life. Um, and so uh, anybody that is truly on a hardcore spiritual path to personally know truth, the, the final third of the book is um, my hope will help people in that regard. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. You can find it, my, my bookstore site is realfacepress.com. And that and other books are briefly described there. And then you can click through to buy them on Amazon. So th thank you. This was, a, I thought this was really amazing. This was kind of helped me along my spiritual path. Like it, it gives me a good idea of where I'm at and where I need to be. And um, I, I want to thank you for taking your time out to come on my show. And uh, it was really nice meeting you. It was good meeting you, Robert. And thank you so much for having me. All right. Have a nice night. You too. Take care, man. All right.